Thank you very much indeed. Well, it's a really good thing when you're being introduced at a time like this that the chair says, actually, we've got the best people coming, you know, next month, the month after, the month after that. <laughs> and so I'm like the warm-up act, which is a good role to be in. And uh, I'm, um, because sometimes, as those of us who've been in the music business know, the warm-up acts come on to become really big acts in their own right. Uh, there are, yes, Diffid is here. Malcolm McNeil is, uh, is here in there, and it's a real joy that Malcolm's here. There are many other people who, who I've worked with in, in previous roles, particularly like to acknowledge Michael Adler sitting in the, near the front row and Bruce Mann from the Cabinet Office. Uh, there are also people here from the Department of Health. Lindsay is here. Thank you very much for coming. And uh, I'd very much like to acknowledge that we've also got uh, the House of Parliament represented here and it is uh, excellent that there is a good mix of policy people and people involved in the actual work in the United Kingdom and also people involved in it internationally. And that's, in a way, uh, an introduction to how I'd like the next 45 minutes to go. I'm going to make a number of propositions, some judgments, occasionally some criticisms about what's going on, with regard to influenza pandemic preparedness, I'm going to identify in a way that I haven't done before in a public event some of the quite tricky policy and program issues that we face as we go into 2008. And I'm really keen that we do have some dialogue about these. There are some people here who are really experienced in this area. Uh, and I'm also keen that if during the flow of my words and my slides, if you say, hey, I don't get that, or that is clearly not consistent with what David said before, please don't hesitate to stop me. Uh, I can get back on track very quickly. I'm not scared of that, and I think it would make for a more interesting time. I hope you don't mind me saying that, Chair. And so the other thing to say is that I want to present quite a lot of material, and obviously one of the things that many of us who... who dealing with an issue 24 over 7 do is we assume that the capturing capacity of those we're talking with is very great and so there's maybe quite a lot of material coming in your direction but uh, please don't get too phased because some of the well all of the material that I put up on the slides uh, is going to be available for you through various routes and the base document that I'm taking my stuff from, which is our third global progress report on responses to avian influenza and the state of pandemic readiness is downloadable and you can easily access it and take it and use it and chop it around and so on. Thank you. Now what I'm going to do initially is to start with a bit of a historical analysis of a variety of disease outbreaks and pandemics not perhaps quite so much on, on influenza, but to start with other pandemics. And I thought I'd spend a moment just reflecting on the giant pandemic that is currently affecting the world. And despite certain differences uh, that have developed about how to estimate the number of people who are infected with HIV, the reality is that it dwarfs so much else that we're involved in in international health. And we have to always remember that we are living in the midst of a pandemic now 
and one that is still extremely challenging for the communities affected by it, particularly in sub-Saharan Africa, with uh, real challenge for, for young women and no vaccine. But the point I really want to make about this pandemic is that as well as this enormous human suffering, it has, of course, brought with it a very, very big economic cost for nations, for communities, for companies and the like. And here's another uh, disease problem, very, very different from HIV-AIDS, a major problem for the livestock industry and particularly for those who are involved in the production of cattle, uh, with a small number of deceased, but again with billions of dollars worth of economic cost and a great deal of, of difficulty for the governments concerned in dealing with it. And the third condition that I want to refer to, SARS, which emerged when I was working in WHO with Dr. Brundtland and it was very interesting to see, you know, it, it took a little bit of time to realise that we were dealing with a major public health crisis. We weren't sure around March, April time how big a crisis it was going to be. And we were wondering at the very beginning whether this was perhaps going to turn out to be a kind of uh, flu pandemic, but no. But what we did have was atypical pneumonia, a pretty major public health success, less than a thousand deaths, uh, 26 countries affected and fairly quickly brought under control. But even if we say it was a public health success, the cost of SARS, direct and indirect, in terms of total dollars that had to be that were lost in relation to it, or the loss in terms of percent of GDP, global GDP was significant and various estimates are there but most of us reckon that it cost about 50 billion dollars and had uh, impact on a number of sectors perhaps the one that was most dramatic was on uh, the airline industry that particularly between March and June 2003 uh, airline passenger movement in and around Hong Kong greatly dropped and the airport at times was deserted and uh, it's interesting also on this particular slide, if I use this mouse as the pointer, to see that uh, the drop in airline passenger movement preceded the WHO travel advisory that was actually accused by the airlines of being responsible for this. But it wasn't the WHO travel advisory that made the difference. It was actually the decisions by individuals and companies that they wanted to take action to avoid people being at risk of, of SARS that led to this. And I'll be coming back to this point in a minute, so I just wanted to point this out at the beginning part of the graph. You can also see that when the WHO travel advisory was removed uh, around the um, end of May, 21st, 22nd of May, the upsurge in airline passengers at Hong Kong airport did not occur quickly. It took quite some time to come back. And perhaps another less well-known communicable disease which has had considerable social and economic implications, Nipah virus in Malaysia, Bangladesh. Uh, a reason why I want to, to point this out is that in common with some of the other diseases that I've mentioned, it's not just a disease of humans. 
it's a disease of animals. And in fact, this is another one where those who are at risk are those who are in closest contact with animals. And perhaps another one, just to mention slightly different, this chikungunya, uh, which is not a, a frequently lethal disease, but suddenly in 2004 became one of major concern, giving rise to infections among people working in the tourist industry, among tourists with the tremendous outbreak in La Réunion, with 266,000 people sick. And all this happened because a virus underwent a mutation in 2004 that meant that instead of being carried only by Anopheles mosquitoes, it was capable of being carried by Albopictus mosquitoes, the Asian tiger mosquito looks like this. And these mosquitoes have a much greater coverage. In fact, they also stretch into the United States. They move to the United States as larvae inside old tires. And so this is a disease whose uh, natural history has changed greatly as a result of the mutation. But the mutation meant that it was carried by different vectors. And so what I tried to do in that first beginning little account of some of the diseases with which WHO has been involved in the last few years was to stress, firstly, there are other pandemics around besides influenza. Secondly, that many of these diseases that are causing considerable stress and uh, suffering among humans have links with the animal kingdom. Thirdly, that as well as killing people, these disease outbreaks can have major economic and social consequences, sometimes that are out of all proportion to their health impact. Fourthly, that the agents that cause these diseases are undergoing often quite continuous change and mutation. So the pattern of disease that we may see in one day, one year, uh, may well not be the pattern that we're going to see the next year or the year after. We are dealing with a situation where disease, animals, economic consequences, mutation and evolution, sometimes associated with changes in ecosystems and living habits, mean that we who are involved in international public health have to be on the alert at all times. If we look at influenza pandemics, one thing that's very clear about comparing the five most recent between 1847 and 1968, one thing that's very clear is that these pandemics are all completely different. The, perhaps the most famous giant pandemic of 1918, well chronicled by John Barry in his book The Great Influenza, well worth reading by the way. One thing, what we saw about that was certainly more than 40 million deaths, a disease that stayed with us for a period of around 18 months between 1918 and 1919. A disease that we still don't fully understand. We don't have full information, for example, about the total morbidity and mortality associated with the disease in Latin America. And where we do have good records, what we can see is that the experiences of different cities, different communities, varied very greatly particularly depending on the kinds of measures that were adopted, the speed with which they were adopted, 
and the effectiveness with which they were adopted. Now, this was obviously a time when, uh, 1918, when people had to rely on some of the more traditional control measures. And what's clear, and what I'll come back to during this talk, is that it was some of the most basic control measures to do with hygiene, to do with social distancing, and to do with avoidance of um, close contact with individuals who were sick, to do with closing schools that had some of the greatest impact on whether or not communities were badly or less badly affected. So some of this has been well examined by Neil Ferguson of Imperial College, who's used it to help with the modelling that he's done to consider what the next influenza pandemic might be like. One of the things that we've learnt is that infectious diseases thrive when systems in society break down, when there's any kind of disaster, when public health systems are affected because personnel are not available, or when they're affected because of difficulties with transportation. And so it's extremely important for all of us who are working in public health to understand that countries and communities with very limited government systems are, of course, most likely to be affected. No surprise to any of you. But I just want to add the increasing interest by the International Monetary Fund who say that when we're looking at the impact of pandemic influenza, we have to look at two poles. Countries that have very restricted infrastructure are, of course, going to get badly hit, but also countries that have got very intensely developed systems through which there is supply and then distribution of goods or a lot of movement of personnel will also be badly affected because they have very limited reserve. And so the expectation when it comes to an influenza pandemic at this time is that the communities that will be most effective will be some of the wealthiest communities and also some of the poorest communities in our world. World Health Organization between January 2001 and May 2006 studied 1,100 events that were infectious disease outbreaks or similar health crises. These were events that all had the capacity to threaten not just populations in single countries but the capacity to move across borders they placed sudden and intense demands on national and international health systems and they demanded effective and concerted action by governments, private entities and voluntary organisations. And for that reason, WHO established a network that was capable of alerting and responding to infectious disease outbreaks that drew on bodies and organisations throughout the world, the Global Outbreak Alert and Response Network, in order to help empower national groups to better be able to respond to infections of a variety of kinds. At the same time, WHO worked with member states to establish the international health regulations as a framework within which international cooperation on infectious diseases would take place. My own view is that the international health regulations are an extremely valuable code to use. But when they were being negotiated in WHO and coming into agreement around 2005, 
there was always the recognition that sovereign rights of individual countries would never be uh, undermined by the international health regulations. And although this hasn't been fully tested, what we've learnt is that when it comes to outbreaks of disease, there is no automatic prescriptive system through which we can be assured that countries will work together. This is a major issue. In summary, just like to give you these five core statements that I think we now need to have pretty solidly in our minds when we're dealing with outbreaks and potential pandemics. Firstly, that our societies are threatened by these microscopic adversaries that in, invade, evade, and surprise. We should never, ever be complacent about the potential for infectious diseases to have major impact on global systems. Increased demand, particularly for animal meat, for consumption. Changes in ecosystems as a result of population growth and pressure on land and other resources. And global warming will drive an increase in the rate of emergence of new microbes and pathogens. Estimates by Lonnie King and colleagues at the Centre for Disease Control and Prevention in Atlanta suggest that 70% of the new emerging pathogens that will threaten the human race will come from the animal kingdom. And the most recent assessment by CDC and WHO is that two pathogens capable of affecting human security will emerge each year. And so at national governments and global institutions, particularly the WHO, are using the international health regulations, the global outbreak alert and response network and other approaches to mount defences against these threats. Because the threat in any one country is a threat for the world and the capacity to respond quickly to zoonotic pathogens that are capable of affecting human security, that capacity is not just a national good, it's a global good. But that does mean that we've got some really big and difficult questions that are going to come up again and again over the next few years on who should take responsibility for financing, managing and coordinating efforts to respond to zoonotic disease. And also, how will the livelihoods and interests of poor people, who are often extremely dependent on livestock for their livelihoods, how will those livelihoods be protected? So that was a sort of a serious bit of five points, and uh, not uh, always going to be serious and preaching-like, but I just wanted to say that, because I actually personally think, from the work that I've been doing over the last two or three years, that the threat posed by animal diseases for humanity over the next 50 years is going to be one of the biggest threats that our human race is going to have to deal with. And I think it's also one that, just at the moment, is not fully understood by an awful lot of policymakers. And that's, I mean, that's not surprising. So I'd like now to look at what's actually happening now with regard to a virus that is, we believe, despite some of the statements in the paper today, but we believe that this H5N1 avian influenza virus 
currently affecting a large number of countries has the potential to undergo mutation and perhaps be the cause of the next influenza pandemic. Um, obviously, you get a lot of virologists in the room and they will perhaps have varying opinions about the speed with which this H5N1 might change so that it's capable of sustained human-to-human -human transmission. But I'm certainly convinced as a result of what I've seen happening to this virus, particularly the slight changes in its stickability uh, during the last two years, and also the speed with which different clades and subclades have developed. I'm convinced that we should still be worried about H5N1, even though we've been living with it in poultry for the last 10 years and it hasn't made the change yet. It's a difficult one. We're dealing here with uncertainties and there will always be people who say, prove it and we can't do so. So what we've been doing is involved in a very intense program of trying to control H5N1, highly pathogenic avian influenza, in poultry and in wildfowl throughout the world during the last three years. This work has not just come from uh, the international agencies like the Food and Agriculture Organization, the World Organization for Animal Health. It's also been very strongly driven by national governments, particularly the governments in South Asia, whose poultry industries have been very badly damaged by this virus. Uh, we'll talk in a, in a minute about some of the countries that have been affected by it and also some of the real changes that we've seen in capacity to respond to the, to the uh, impact of the virus. But I'd just like to spell out to you that at the moment there are six countries that are giving us cause for concern. Countries in which transmission of this H5N1 bird flu virus is continuous. Indonesia is far and away the most important. More than half the districts in Indonesia are affected by H5N1. Then we've got Egypt, Nigeria, Bangladesh, China and Vietnam. But there are many other countries that have had outbreaks as well as obviously the UK this afternoon. We've got Israel who reported some last weekend and we've had um, many more who were reported towards the end of last year. And when these countries have their outbreaks, what most of them are able to do is to close them down quickly through efficient control measures and that then means that the disease is stamped out at source. That's what's got to happen more and more, that capacity to deal with it, because as long as there's H5N1 continuously transmitted in these six countries, there will continually be reinfection in other locations. And however good the biosecurity is in commercial poultry plants, they are likely to get infected again and again. We do still believe that migrating birds are sometimes responsible for bringing H5N1 into commercial poultry populations, but there's a massive debate on how important they really are, and just at the moment I'm not prepared to put any money on it. Now, we've had H5N1 infection in over 300 human beings since 2003 proven. We've probably had it in many more unproven. And of these, over 200 have died. The humans who get it seem to be those who've been closely exposed to poultry. When the virus gets into a human, it tends to stick to the lower respiratory epithelia down here. Were further mutation to occur and were it to be capable of sticking to upper respiratory mucosa, then human-to-human -human transmission would occur. 
And the genetic makeup of this virus is evolving continuously. Like all RNA viruses, this influenza virus changes continuously. So therefore, it's still reasonable to be frightened about the possibility that it may become capable of human-to-human transmission. And every time we hear of a cluster of cases, like Pakistan recently, we get nervous. What's interesting is that the countries that have reported occurrences of H5N1 avian influenza in poultry since 2003 are in this quite tight band. We haven't had cases of infected poultry reported, for example, from southern Africa. We haven't had cases of infected poultry reported from Australasia. We haven't had cases of infected poultry or wild birds reported from the USA, though we've had low-path H5 and other low-path, um, low-pathogenic low avian influenza viruses in the US. Still, we've got a lot of questions about the distribution of this virus. And if we look at January uh, to June 2007, the pattern is remarkably similar, that it's quite a tight band of countries that are affected. And that does lead some to consider that it's still likely to be due to a combination of trade and migrating birds. So the threat of a human influenza pandemic when we've got a bird virus that's capable of getting into humans is there and I, I really need your help, I need everybody's help to explain that we're going to have to live with this uncertainty for quite some time and it's really not a sensible plan for any government any community, any organisation to say just because we haven't had mutation of the virus and human to human transmission in 10 years means that we're safe. We're not. So I'd now like to spend a moment thinking about what the potential impacts of a pandemic are and then use that to identify some of the key elements of pandemic preparedness that we're after. First of all, the impacts will obviously be in the health sector, but they go beyond health to have potential for impact on governance and security, social and humanitarian issues, and economic systems. And so first key take-home message on pandemics is please recognise that they have a potential to go way beyond the health sector. Why is that? Well, it's because a combination of deaths absenteeism and the attempts by individuals themselves to avoid infection will dent the capacity of economies to supply goods and they will also impact on the demand side of an economy. The work on this has been done by an economist called Milan Brambat at uh, the um, World Bank. And what Brambat and his team have done is work that Simon Strickland, who's sitting here, knows very well, is they worked out using information from SARS and also information obtained from other responses to infectious disease, the relative importance of death, of people being absent because they can't work, and of people taking conscious decisions to try to avoid disease on economic production and economic systems. And they concluded that it's the attempts to avoid infection that have far and away the greatest economic and social impact. What that means, therefore, is that if we can, in our planning for pandemic, make sure that people have the best possible knowledge about how they can avoid infection, 
and also make sure that we're prepared for when the pandemic comes to be able to provide the most accurate and reliable information about risks people face in different parts of the world, then we can fairly quickly have a chance of reducing that particular part of the economic impact. We can also help to reduce absenteeism by doing conscious planning of what staff are necessary for continuity in government, in industry, in service, in service organisations, and thus, by having homeworking and other techniques, reduce the impact of unplanned absenteeism. If we have high unplanned absenteeism and widespread attempts by people to avoid infection that may not be necessarily based on the best evidence, we may well get threats to rule of law, overcrowding at airports, people trying to get onto planes, people trying to cross borders and being denied permission to do so. We may also get problems with security because of reduction in numbers in police forces, difficulties in correction institutions and the like. So the economic slash social impact of the next pandemic goes way beyond health systems and hospitals, which anyway, once the pandemic is particularly pronounced, are likely to be overloaded. It helps us when thinking about planning to have some scenarios. And by and large, most of the countries with whom I have been working have tended to have a small number of scenarios, one which is imagining the present situation of what's called the WHO Phase 3, avian influenza with sporadic human cases going on for quite a long time. Then there's talk about having possible slow onset and localised impact pandemic, a pandemic with a perhaps one or more very weakly transmissible or relatively weakly transmissible influenza viruses, and then the big pandemic, the 1918 style, where you've got a high case reproduction rate and a major pandemic. The reason for having these scenarios is it's not really sensible, in our opinion, all the time to be planning for the worst case scenario. We need to be planning for the full mix. I'm now going to summarise to you some of the work that's been done in order to prepare for pandemic. By and large, what we've seen at in countries since November 2005 at an international meeting where strategies were agreed is that there's been an integrated approach to combining work on bird flu by stopping influenza in birds and work on preventing a pandemic, containing a pandemic and mitigating a pandemic all in an integrated strategy. You find that most countries have found this best to do. It does lead to a lot of confusion however because there are people who talk, say, oh, well, we're dealing with a potential bird flu pandemic. Well, once the pandemic starts, it won't be bird flu. And we get people confused about whether bird flu is actually the signs of the beginning of a human pandemic or not. And so dealing with the confusion about the juxtaposition of these terms and concepts is difficult. But in general, it's proved much easier to have integrated strategies in this way than to handle things separately. Now, if I look around the world, there are a number of enabling factors that determine whether countries are successful in their pandemic planning. And they would be the same, I believe, for other pandemic, pot potential pandemics besides influenza. In summary, it, it's good information and intelligence, science and evidence-based interventions, the right actions at the right place at the right time. 
It's also having strong political direction. A country that doesn't have good political direction will not be able to do this work properly. And we've had certain countries where the political leadership has been weak. They have, I believe, not coincidentally, been countries where both pandemic planning and avian influenza control have been poor. Thailand showed us that if you want to control your bird flu and also deal with uh, worries about pandemic, you've got to have the capacity to scale up capacity quickly out into the periphery. Vietnam was able to do the same using the party to mobilize actors. And you have to have a strong social mobilization force using the media, using change agents at village level to get results. By and large, we're finding that avian influenza is impossible to control, pandemic influenza is impossible to plan for without incentives to staff and communities to do the work. And alliances of government and partners are the key. But we are saying repeatedly, go beyond the health sector. Involve the financial services, involve utilities, involve travel companies, involve military, security personnel, involve those concerned with environment and hygiene. Don't just stick with the health sector when you're trying to get prepared. Now, in terms of getting prepared, the advice that we've given to countries and the advice that we've received from countries who are doing the work a lot is that the first goal is early detection, investigation and confirmation and containment. That social distancing and personal protection, movement restriction and continuity of essential infrastructure have got to be at the centre of pandemic preparedness planning. Antiviral therapy will be part of the effort and the modellers have stressed the importance of antiviral therapy but our argument is that oseltamivir and other therapies cannot be at the centre of pandemic preparedness. We don't know how effective it will be. We also don't know how easy it will be to distribute and we don't know how much we're going to need in any situation. So social distancing and personal protection must come first and antiviral therapy second there will not be effective vaccines available for dealing with the pandemic virus probably for four to six months unless we're very lucky and the pandemic virus has sufficient antigenic similarity to the current H5N1 viruses that the existing anti-H5N1 vaccines that are being produced now by a number of companies with a really good dose-sparing antigen, that those will prove to be useful. But at the moment, we can't bank on them. And it's really unfortunate that some companies are marketing them as pre-pandemic vaccines when we just don't know that that will be the virus. And we have a major controversy at the moment about whether poor countries, particularly some of the poor countries that are at the moment experiencing a lot of H5N1, will actually have access to these vaccines. I want to stress that some of the points that I've made just now are represent points of major controversy and disagreement globally, Uh, but I think that you would find most practitioners would agree that the first emphasis must be put on social distancing and personal protection and not on the use of antiviral therapy. And the way in which countries are planning to use antiviral therapy varies hugely. We have some countries that have purchased a lot and intend to use a lot other countries that have purchased very little and will reserve it just for uh, ensuring the safety of essential personnel. But whatever happens, 
what we are encouraging countries to do is to ensure a high level of popular awareness and understanding. Any country that says we won't tell our people about pandemic possibility because we're basically scared that they'll panic, any country that does that is just sowing the seeds of future trouble. We also want to see all countries having crisis plans to mitigate the effects of pandemic on economies, governance, basic needs and border movements. And we want to see humanitarian systems that can deliver food and other essential services to isolated populations properly prepared. No pandemic plan will be satisfactory as far as we're concerned if protocols haven't been developed for the use of stockpiles and emergency operations and if there hasn't been the full involvement of civil society, NGOs, local government and the private sector in at least finding their way into the planning process, even if not fully involved. A communication system for use at the beginning, middle and uh, the end stage of the pandemic should be developed and tested before the pandemic with spokespeople identified and trained and ready and the media engaged in the planning so that they will make proper use of these spokespeople on a regular basis, ideally we believe daily basis, even when there's no firm information to give out, so that there will be regular contact between people and spokespeople by radio, television and also mouth, um, um, in, in person. And then lastly, all plans have got to be simulated, but simulation itself is no good. They've got to be actually revised as a result of the simulation. And that doesn't just mean plans in individual institutions. So often our institutions are very heavily stovepiped. Plans have to be tested jointly by different groups who are working in localities, something that you have experience with in Britain, but which we are having to see done in many more countries because without that, uh, you can't be sure the system's all going to work. Now, in all the work that I'm involved in, I'm trying to make sure that community members are fully engaged because without that and without people themselves feeling that they're part of the solution, we will have, once the pandemic does start, a sense of alienation. And the second thing that's really important that, of course, none of you need reminding is that we have to use clear messages. This is the four messages that are being used in preparedness in Indonesia. And um, there are some who say, well, you oversimplified, but it is my view, at least, that this has got to happen. How are you doing? Am I, um, first of all, but I'm just looking, how many people are feeling sleepy? I told you it was a fairly dense, dense presentation. I'm, I'm not going to... Um, go on quite with the level of density, but I wanted just to give you the basic standards that we're looking at and, and uh, a little bit now on, um, on, on implementation and then I'm going to come to assessment and then I'm going to finish. I am going to skip a couple of slides, even though they're my favourites, because there are moments when you have to have some... One of the things that we have tried to do that's rather special about the work we've been doing in the UN during the last two and a half years is we've tried to bring together all the different parts of the UN under a single master plan, what we call the Consolidated Action Plan, for how we're going to work with countries. And it's really been very exciting to see that happen, and I will be talking a little bit about that in a second. But the second thing we've tried to do is to coordinate so that people actually do work together. Uh, we have learnt really, I think, the hard way that when people say they're coordinating, they usually are not. 
And when they say they're coordinating, they usually have completely different meanings for what the word coordination means. So I wanted to just share with you, we've got a kind of stepwise hierarchy, that's the wrong way around here, but it is a hierarchy, of the different levels of coordination that we're seeing. Normal business is when people meet together and they sit and they're meeting and they make statements to each other about what they're doing. That is the most basic form of coordination and as far as I'm concerned, it's usually non-coordination because they usually lie anyway. The second is when you go beyond the statements to develop sufficient trust that you actually share information, share samples, share ideas and be prepared to uh, trust the person with whom you share them uh, not to give you um, trouble as a result of sharing. Third level is when you actually agree to pursue a single strategy. Now that's quite sophisticated. The fourth level is working for harmony and avoiding discord. The best example of discord in my view is when people give press briefings against each other, which is very common. The fifth is seeking synergy, which is when you're working in a way that is better than the sum of the parts. And then the ideal, of course, is to work as one or unity, which is just about impossible. But what we've been trying to do is to develop indicators for synergy, indicators for harmony, and indicators for the extent to which different groups are working to one strategy. That's the kind of coordination that we've been after, not only in the UN, but between often many, many actors working in countries or working in regions who are trying to deal with this issue. We think we've done reasonably well, but there's still an awful long way to go. Now, when we dissect out the strategies that are being adopted, when assistance is being provided for avian human influenza work, they basically divide into seven areas. The first is obviously work on animal health and biosecurity. The second is to sustain livelihoods because so many billions of poor people depend on animals for their livelihoods and there's no point in trying to control a disease threat simply by going around and killing all the animals. The third is safeguarding human health which international health regulations help us to do. The fourth is actually coordination itself is something that we have to strive for. Fifth is communication, which you've heard me say is at the centre of everything we do. Sixth is ensuring that countries and communities can maintain continuity under pandemic conditions. And then the seventh is the humanitarian activities, making sure that when food, water and everything else runs out, that we've got reserves in place. These seven objectives are the central seven objectives of just about every part of the international effort on avian and pandemic influenza. And within the UN Consolidated Action Plan, they are the seven objectives that the different parts of the UN are pursuing with support from uh, a central fund. Now, the assistance that we're providing is very ambitious. We're trying to cut across a lot of different sectors, involve stakeholders in different organisations, providing assistance with political and policy action, financial needs, institutional development, science, media management and the like. And then we're also trying to work at a variety of different levels, local, country, regional and global. And during, uh, during the last period, we have then been involved in this assessment process where we're trying to assess how countries are actually getting on in response to this assistance, financed by the international community, supported by the UN, and producing these reports at intervals, not least to try to explain 
to donors what's being done with their money. And it's been very interesting and challenging to try to collect information from countries about how they're getting on. But through survey work that was championed by Simon Strickland here, we've now got to a system where we were able in uh, the middle of last year to get responses from 146 countries about how they're getting on. Obviously, the basic statistics during 2005, 2006, 2007 was at least in terms of H5N1, the situation seemed to be plateauing. It's not quite so good at the moment. The latest statistics uh, that give me information until a couple of days ago suggest that we've still got some way to go uh, being to be sure that we're at a plateau, but still things are improving. I've mentioned already that there are six countries that give us concern with H5N1, but that we've generally got much better capacity over the last 12 months to respond to highly pathogenic avian influenza. We've got a movement, I believe, that involves hundreds of thousands of people in countries as diverse as China and Malawi, Russia and Brazil, who have been upgrading veterinary capacity to handle this threat. And uh, although it's been improved, still my colleagues in the World Organization for Animal Health believe that it's a glass half empty as well as half full. We still think that the coordination between animal and human health surveillance isn't good enough. We think that the improvement in human influenza virus diagnostic and surveillance capacity has improved, but the situation in Africa is unsatisfactory. And while over 90% of countries tell us that they've developed influenza pandemic preparedness plans, the majority of these plans do not have enough multi-sectoral and multi-level pandemic planning. And there's some particularly unsatisfactory features of most pandemic plans in that they've rarely been adequately tested. They don't include the wider social and economic impacts, particularly the viability of financial systems and governance systems. And they don't consider the needs of vulnerable groups including migrants. And these concerns apply to wealthy and poor countries. Interestingly, some of the humanitarian organizations like the Red Cross movement have moved very well with pandemic preparedness planning but report to me that frequently they find when they talk to national governments they are not given a seat at the table. 73% of countries have implemented communication strategies to create awareness. I believe that this has been one of the great successes, that this has been an area in which there's been a lot of awareness. It's not always fully understood, and we're finding in poorer countries that awareness, particularly in relation to the threat from animals, hasn't always translated into behaviour change. But there are some very good examples of pandemic preparedness. Australia has done an excellent exercise that involved 2,000 people called Operation Cumston, uh, which uh, over a period of time demonstrated some of the flaws in the Australian response, particularly the problems of their highly decentralised system of governance. APEC, the Asia-Pacific Economic Community, has done some excellent work on how economies will function in the times of a pandemic. And the UK has done some very good uh, financial sector planning through the work of the Financial Services Authority, the Treasury and um, uh, others and we are, we are very impressed by that and we see that the United States has similarly done a similar exercise recently and there's some opportunities for comparing notes and the IMF is very closely tracking it. But there's still, I believe, work to be done in most countries to check the continuity of governance, the viability of governance 
I know that some of this is being done secretly and I don't necessarily know about it, but things like the capacity of police and other services to function in the event of a pandemic is something that's certainly worrying us in the United Nations, particularly in countries that have uh, peacekeeping forces present. In terms of finance for this activity, this was an issue for which there was uh, a lot of money made available around, uh, uh, sorry, uh, uh, at least 2.3 billion was made available in 2006 and further money was made available uh, right at the end um, of 2007 in New Delhi. But we have found that the money available to help countries is diminishing and they are having to become more and more dependent on loans as grants decline. And so we are... We had a very important recent stock take in New Delhi with more than 100 countries represented, more than 40 ministers and 700 participants, where it seemed that we we were able to demonstrate that the threat is much more clearly understood by countries, but ongoing transmission is a continued challenge. There was excellent focus from countries on some of the tasks they have to do. And the government of India developed a roadmap which they felt could be adopted by countries in order to help all countries benchmark themselves against each other on what they're trying to do. But the main conclusion of the Delhi conference, once the pledging had been done and once uh, we, we were ready to move forward, is that we are at a time of evolution. We can't go on just focusing on avian influenza and pandemic preparedness as a global issue. We can't try to take up vast amounts of resources and executive time on avian influenza and pandemic preparedness, particularly in poor countries that are very very much in short supply. But what we can do is recognise what this work on avian influenza has really pointed out for so many governments around the world, which is the underlying threat to human security as a result of animal diseases and the challenges that can occur, the interface between animals and humans that could lead to the emergence of other diseases like AIDS, like Ebola, like yellow fever that we've been talking about at the beginning of this presentation for which at the moment uh, we are not adequately defended. Some will see animal diseases posing threats to human security that are on a par with climate change and global war. Not many, but I think those of you who think about this issue can recognise when you look particularly at the impact that HIV AIDS has had that this is a pretty dramatic human security threat coming from animal kingdom and there will be others. And so there's an increasing recognition that more work is needed at the interface between animals, humans, environmental and food health and a recognition that pandemic would represent a mega catastrophe which would call for multi-country, multi-sectoral and multi-level responses. This came out very strongly in the last day of this most recent meeting in New Delhi and led to a a commission or request being given to the United Nations and the World Bank to look for a longer-term strategy for how we could collectively, as a world, invest in activities that will lead to better defences against animal-derived diseases and better preparedness not just against an influenza pandemic but against all outbreaks and pandemics coming from the animal kingdom that have the potential to lead to major loss of life and major economic and social crisis. So for me, having 
initiated some of the um, um, analyses that I've described here and watched governments and others take them forward and actually pay a lot of attention to them, this is a time to renew energy and focus and say, can we now take the insights and work that we've done on this and find ways to use this to strengthen community resilience, to build better solidarity between nations when it comes to handling the global threat of a pandemic, to encourage convergence of disciplines, particularly animal health and human health, and complementary reactors, and better public, private and voluntary partnerships for this work. Thanks very much for the chance to share these insights with you. I look forward to any questions you might have. Yes, super, actually. Um, yeah. And comments. First thing I'd like to say is that David's given me a, a, an opportunity to play my normal record of these events, which is, if you're social scientists, this is a really important area of research, the social sciences of effective leaders. There are very few people who do this kind of research, and it's really important to start thinking about it. We have a number of roving microphones, and when you want to ask a question, please put your hand up, and please say who you are, and if you have some kind of institutional affiliation which you think is significant, please also say that. But you can keep it secret if you want to. You can be secret if you want to. Question at the front here. My name is Jim Kennedy. As a mid-octogenarian, I'm no longer affiliated. You stated, Dr. Navarro, that uh, there is... um, quite a degree of controversy uh, surrounding some of your views. Um, It seems to me that the the viewpoint of your organization, given the fact that it is so synoptic and has such a vast uh, information network, uh, merits your organization being weighted very, very heavily above the contributions of some uh, those with variant opinions. Uh, here's the question. In the UK, uh, I wonder how much your views are shared by organizations such as uh, the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine and the Royal Society. Uh, I probably can't answer that. <laughs> but uh, I... Um Uh, Let's see. Uh, There may be people here who will make some comments about that. Uh, I I do think that the new International Development Centre that's been set up in Bloomsbury with the Royal Veterinary College, the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine, uh, the uh, School of Pharmacy, Birkbeck College, SOAS, and I think there are a few others, and I think LSE might be almost in it, not quite. Ought to be. I think this is the kind of constellation that is absolutely essential for preparing for human security in relation to emerging diseases over the next 50 years. I also note that the Wellcome Trust and the Rockefeller Foundation are both looking towards this kind of way of thinking and working. I think it's just all of us, the governments who were meeting in New Delhi, 
some of the academic organisations who are looking around this stuff. Even big private companies who are involved in major animal production systems and so on. We're all slightly feeling our way, groping slowly towards what kind of shape the new disciplines will have to be if they're going to help to, us to develop that security. And then we've got the other parallel problem of how to do with some quite stovepiped institutions in governments that still, not perhaps in the UK, but in other places, are not cross-linked at the local level between the different groups of professionals who are involved in these different areas. Thank you very much, um, Andrew Lansley, Shadow Secretary of State for Health. Um, thank you very much for the lecture. I thought it was fascinating across an enormous um, range of issues. Um, can, I, can I trespass and just ask two questions? Firstly, um, at, at one point you were describing the importance of social distancing as yeah. part of a response to a pandemic. Yeah. And at another point, um, you said that attempts to evade infection probably give rise to some of the largest economic costs yeah. of an infection. Correct. So first question is, how best does one reconcile these two yeah. uh, apparently conflicting factors? Because there is a risk, um, which I imagine all of us have in mind, that the response um, to pandemic would be a kind of we must have business as usual and the more people try to do business as usual mm. the more we have a risk of um, uh, increasing the overall level of infection. Second quick question is and I, I simply have no idea whether there is anything we should be concerned about specifically about this but it does seem to me that there is a um, on the face of it there may be a risk that um, in those parts of the world where there is relatively high level of HIV infection mm. um, there may be a combination of um, factors in that um, pandemic influenza would strike in a population that had um, immune compromised populations. Yeah. Yeah. Do we know anything about that and about the nature of that yeah. exceptional, unprecedented risk? There may be actually others in the um, room here who might catch my eye on the second one. The first one is a really um, interesting and germane issue. The analysis by Brumbat, based on a number of outbreaks, particularly a rather important, uh, well-studied by social scientists, outbreak of plague in Surat in India, uh, and a number of other similar uh, human responses to infectious disease threat, the analysis by Brumbat suggested that people put themselves into danger or create additional problems when they attempt to evade infection but on the basis of incorrect information or making wrong choices. And so the Brumbat argument, very strong argument, is put much, much more energy into not only public information before the bad thing happens, but into having a fail-safe public information dissemination system that is repeatedly giving out the correct information, the best advice, when the thing starts, even before there is confirmation that the thing is the thing. And that's very difficult. We, the Cumpston Australian test showed just how difficult it was for health professionals 
to give advice that journalists could handle, use and feel comfortable with when they didn't have confirmed data on which to base their statements. Yet it's often at the time when stuff is unconfirmed, when the rumours are floating around, that this kind of really firm, clear guidance is particularly important. The most valuable thing that people can do when there is a contagion around the place, particularly airborne influenza, is stay at home. It is the best advice anyway for when people are sick, is stay at home. You're more likely to reduce what happens to yourself if you're well or what happens to other people if you're ill if you can stay at home. And so the social distancing advice that we give and that I hope everybody else is giving is to do just that, to stay put. And if you're away from home, stay put. Batten down the hatches. Don't feel you've got to run to the nearest airport and try to get back home as quickly as possible. I think this is really tricky advice to give to people. For example, in the United Nations, we have decided that when pandemic starts, we will ask our staff to remain in post but at home. There will be a huge temptation for people who are expatriate to want to get on the next plane and go back to their home country. We know that a number of countries will not let them back if they come from a place where there is contagion and suspected or proven pandemic influenza. We also know that if they are trying to go through transit points, like, for example, Bangkok International Airport, they may well have a risk of exposing themselves to disease. Now, it's proving to be quite challenging when we have staff meetings and so on at duty stations, and we go through this. It's quite challenging. People, people's first response is to say, we won't necessarily get the medical care. Where are the ventilators? All that stuff. Uh, but it is our judgment that they are likely to be much more able to survive if they can stay at home rather than if they're rushing off to try to get home. This advice conflicts with the advice that's given by some of the diplomatic missions in our duty stations, but that, that's, that's their business. I don't suppose that was necessarily answering the point, but I was at least trying to point out to you the absolute importance of having the communications clear well in advance and working them through. Now, HIV influenza. I have an answer to that. Michael, what do you think? <laughs> Professor Michael Adler. Well, it's, yeah, I think it's entirely feasible. I mean, right. if you've got a respiratory virus, I mean, we can see what's happened with TB. Yeah. Can you hear it at the back? Yeah. And uh, uh, certainly my view was that when SARS was starting up, we did get quite nervous about what would happen in HIV-affected populations when SARS arrived. And um, there was a, a difference of opinion. Some people said that actually the particular pathology that SARS leads to uh, may actually present differently in somebody who's uh, got a reduced... Uh, cell-mediated immune response. And so it, I think that this is work still that needs to be done. And I know that the National Institutes of Health are doing some, some work on this on animal models. Thanks for the question. There's a question in the middle again. Can you put your hand up? Oh, here you are.
Um, you Say who you are. Uh, yes, I'm Adrian Miles. I'm unaffiliated with anybody interesting. Um, That's a very strange term. <laughs> <laughs> Which um, you may be wondering. <laughs> you, you've touched on government's desire um, not to induce panic. Yes. And indeed, aside from panic buying at the time of an epidemic, yeah. and, and maybe you can tell me differently, I know of no examples of, of actual panic um, that governments are generally trying to avoid. And I know for a fact that it has influenced at least some parts of the UK government response. And I haven't seen, I, I'm not aware of any Western governments, and, and I'm probably wrong, but it's certainly not widespread, offering widespread advice to populations now as to what, what should be done. And one of the obvious things that I don't know if, if you consider should be done is to um, stockpile food now so that there isn't a rush to shops where everybody mixes and panic buying at the time. I wonder what actual advice you think should be given to populations now in the West and, and the developing world and um, what your views are on, on how governments are dealing with this. So there are three things about in that question. The first is uh, this word panic. Uh, we must not provoke panic. What happens when you get an outbreak of bird flu somewhere is that people stop buying poultry. Uh, and that's not necessarily a very good idea because actually it's quite easy to kill this virus uh, when you cook poultry and an awful uh, lot of the poultry that's on the shelves particularly in an industrialised country, will have no chance of having virus inside it. Um, but then, fairly quickly, the poultry purchasing patterns return to normal. It's, it's, it doesn't usually go on for very long. And my experience more generally is that when you've got a piece of bad stuff going on, that if there is panic, it's usually quite short-lived. And secondly, the second part of my experience is that without a little bit of anxiety and fear, people won't doing any, do anything interesting anyway. So I'm, as you would probably gather from my style and what I'm occasionally quoted to, to have said, uh, I tend to err on the side of saying what I think rather than holding back. Number two, what sort of advice should be given to people now about what they should do in the event of a pandemic or any other phenomenon which might lead to a kind of crisis situation my own view is that preparedness and resilience training for communities is an important part of civil defence and, and security training anyway. And so I would, if I was in government and had responsibility, be again erring on the side of encouraging the involvement of voluntary organisations like the Red Cross movement and local authorities in helping people prepare for what might happen in the event of any contingency, be it flooding or the like. Um, and I'm sure that uh, we have experts here from the UK government who would comment on, on that statement if they wish to, not far from where you're sitting. And thirdly, uh, I, would, um, I would believe, I, I would be wanting to tell people that it's a pretty wise plan to have stocks of food and water in your home under any circumstances anyway. Uh, I know that this disadvantages poor people, it disadvantages people who live in spaces where they can't keep stock safely, 
but uh, I, I, I would say that it's a wise counsel and it's one uh, that uh, I am actually personally encouraging people to do quite a lot. Did you want to say anything? Or not? About civil contingencies? Or do, do, you, do you want to say who you are? If you didn't want to say who you were, you see, you could have just said no and then you would have, could have stayed more anonymous. Bruce Mann, Cabinet Office, just on the last point, people may remember, sorry, the Brits and the audience may remember, a booklet which the government put through letterboxes back in 2003. Um, I wasn't around at the time, so uh, I take no credit or blame, but uh, it was fairly randomly derided by the press, but that yeah. included the advice that people should stockpile so-called ambient food, I stuff yeah. in the cooling Jock Whittlesey from the American Embassy here, and I follow health issues. Um, I'm also an alumnus of the SARS uh, and uh, avian flu crises. I was in Beijing at the time. I would just make a couple of points. Um, as a member of the diplomatic corps, uh, we're always concerned about our American citizens overseas, and our policy in general is to encourage people to stay in place, uh, even. Uh, in developed uh, countries such as the United Kingdom, and that applies uh, certainly for our diplomatic services all over the globe. The general policy has been you're going to be better off where you are and uh, going through preparations uh, to uh, secure your uh, food and water with uh, stockpiles, et cetera. So that's something that we're advocating for our uh, overseas uh, populations. Um, the first gentleman was asking about the uh, controversies that Dr. Navarro uh, mentioned. I would just like to sort of set his mind at ease that this is a natural phenomenon in this situation, that these are extremely complex and difficult issues, and it's uh, being implemented in different contexts around the world, and that uh, it's quite natural for these differences of opinion to uh, emerge. I think that's a natural part of the development of, of good policy. And that uh, so the fact that not everybody agrees on either the problem or the solution, I think, should not be uh, considered as a, as a problem, but simply a natural core uh, development of, of ideas in the situation. Uh, and then I just 
finally wanted to comment that um, as uh, Dr. Nabarro was talking about the various preparations, that I would underline the fact um, that many of the preparations that you're talking about for avian flu, in fact, are extremely useful for other uh, kinds of civil uh, uh, disruptions, uh, disasters of various types. And as a, somebody who works in government and we're constantly looking at uh, how do we maintain uh, funding streams and interest to be able to draw in uh, other parties from outside the health world, uh, security folks or military people or uh, people who are responding to uh, chemical or biological weapon incidents. That builds a community of interests that uh, have a lot of shared uh, concerns and uh, I think that also strengthens our ability as governments to maintain a lasting engagement on these issues whereas uh, I know that the avian flu issue as a pinpoint issue has you know sort of had this peak of popular interest but as governments I think we need to see beyond that go for the long term and one way we can do that is to bring in this larger community of interest thank you thank you very much there's a question there and a question there and then there's a question here and a question right at the back so we have four questions lined up and why don't uh, one over here as well why don't we don't, why doesn't every questioner or speaker say their piece and then and then, you and then uh, we can have a sort of collective response and so on then okay let's take because we're coming to then the we can get more people to give a chance to say a few words okay lady there please um, my name is Eric Matala and I'm from the LSA Economic History Department. Um, you mentioned the, the use of simulations in, in the, the, the preparedness planning, and I would actually, and, and then you mentioned uh, Professor Ferguson's models, and uh, I would actually like to, to, to ask you um, how these models and simulation techniques are, are assessed in the preparedness planning, in, in the more broader, broader framework of, of work you've been describing, because I mean. Of course, you can look at the models and you can look at the simulations and they have their weaknesses. For example, Ferguson's models rely on past data. Of course, we don't have data from the future at the yeah. point. And, and, and in that sense, they are always bound with the assumptions they, that are built in. So I would like to actually ask what kind of role these, these models play in the broader picture of, of, of preparedness work? My name is Yasmin Hardy. I work with HLSP here in London. Um, my question was about the communications. I, I find that the, the most interesting, as you said, the most crucial um, part of pandemic preparedness. Um, it, just about the, the simulations, um, our communica the communication strategies obviously evolve pretty much in a vacuum, and then you have the simulations that you will uh, carry out for all of the other parts of your pandemic preparedness plan. Is the communication strategy tested and then retested and then and tweaked, etc.? Because um, I worked briefly um, in a country on a pandemic plan, uh, Which communication country? plan, Armenia. Yeah. Um, and um, one, of the, one of the challenges was countering some of the miscommunication that came out yeah. from vested interests, from, from uh, the businesses who were, in, who were affected uh, by the, by the uh, messages that were going out. So um, the communication, again, is not just going out into a vacuum. I wonder if that uh, is tested in the simulations. Yeah. 
And there was a question in the middle there, the gentleman there, yep. Hi, my name's Martin. I'm from Bond, which is a network of 300 international development NGOs, and also from Pandemic Action, which is a bunch of people with no time and no money who think there should be a civil society response to this. You were at Chatham House? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Um, so my question is really, um, what can we learn from, for example, AIDS, where the international community, civil society, UN, spent an awful lot of time shouting about how big this was going to be uh, and how there needed to be a bigger response, and, and there wasn't because of probably largely the political and economic disparities in the world. And just a question about really what can we learn about how to deal with, deal with that. <laughs> you shouldn't have said that. You've elicited an immediate response from another part of the house, so I'll tell you that. Lady in the corner here at the front, please. My name is Nina Lacane. I'm the author of the Page Six article on the Independent on Sunday last week. Um, Do you? Yes. Oh, I wrote to you. Hello. Nice oh, to nice to see you. And I wanted to ask, really, what would be your, what would be the advice that you would give to schools to prepare? Um, I would, what I would expect is parents to keep their children away from, off from schools, and whether that would be, you know, what how can schools and teachers plan um, for for a pandemic? Lady back there, please. Meeting questions, isn't it? Yeah, there's loads mm. of questions coming now. Mm, meeting. This is, the, this is the hand on the door handle. Is it? My name is Cicely Thomas. I'm a master's student here studying health, population, and society. And I was just wondering if you could comment on um, the government and international responsibility of um, populations such as refugees and people living in slums and, and who will be taking responsibility for um, helping those people if there is a David, of course, is remembering all these... I'm writing them down, writing down. We're all here. It's John just I haven't got anybody's names. It was just on Christmas Day, it's a bit sad really, uh, I was thinking about what I did on, in 1957, which is a pandemic year, mm. and I was a schoolboy, and I don't remember anything about it. Mm. And then I thought, well, what did I do in 1968? I was a virologist in 1968, and I think, well, I don't remember anything about that either. Mm. Um, so I think we, you know, I quite agree about all the planning, mm. but sometimes... You know, when you think about it, most people will just won't even know there's anything happening. Yeah. And uh, even in the 1918 outbreak, of course, 99.9% of people came through it quite healthily. So that's the other perspective. It's not to say we don't want to plan, but that, you know, most people will come through it as if they didn't, anything, nothing had happened at all. At the front here, please, Alan Whiteside. Tony's identified me, Alan Whiteside, University of KwaZulu-Natal, uh, Durban. What have we learned from AIDS? Well, I think we've learned a great deal from it. Um, and one of the things is, uh, I must, I'm an economist, and I must uh, quote uh, Keynes, who said, when the facts change, I change my mind. What do you do, sir? <laughs> um, but the one thing we have learned from uh, the AIDS epidemic is that you need nuanced responses. And while it may be the case that the global estimates have been uh, altered, in the part of the world I come from, Southern Africa, what are known as the red countries, uh, the epidemic is uh, incredibly serious. Uh, for example, Swaziland has just released their 2007 uh, census reports, and the country, the population of that little country has actually declined as a result of this epidemic. So I would say that uh, if there's one thing we've learned from AIDS, and I'm sure it's going to be the case for, uh, in, for other pandemics, is that you need nuanced responses. And the last question I'm taking is the gentleman at the back there, please. Yes, you microphone coming your way now. Um, I'm, my name is Stephen Gilmore. I'm, I'm a master's student here. 
You mentioned that um, some governments were taking precautions to stockpile a large amount of antivirals and others weren't. To what extent are current antivirals going to be effective against a virus that um, is going to be distinct? And to what extent can, can virologists attempt to develop an effective vaccine against something that is going to be presumably genetically different to other influenza strains? So, should we start on some of these things? Well, first of all, I, there are a lot of these questions could be dealt with better by others in the room than me, but that's just the way it is, and we, um, I'll do my best. Um, I mean, the first was very interesting about simulations in contingency planning and what we're actually talking about. Your first. We'd start with scenarios of analysis of what we think is likely to happen to health, social, economic governance systems under the burdens imposed by an acute phase pandemic. I think those scenarios are probably not far off the truth of what's going to happen because they're based on reasonably good historical evidence. I mean, it may... They may be wrong in terms of intensity or degree, but I, I still believe that the scenarios aren't bad. What we then do is to apply those scenarios to specific situations. And it's not, I mean, we, we worked with a company called Booz Allen Hamilton to develop a game which enables a group of people, perhaps 50 or 60 people, to take on different roles and to play through in fast time how government, voluntary organisations, major industries, international bodies and the media will together react to an evolving pandemic. And the game has a bit, if you play Monopoly, it's got things like chance and community chess cards in it. It's got what we call injections, which can change the pattern of evolution in a way that makes it a little bit unpredictable. Now, those kinds of simulation games permit people to learn and practice, and we've got other kinds of simulations which require people to actually develop protocols that they will then use for their work because they're based more on specific situations in which we're working. We've got a third group of simulations that are very much designed for the United Nations and for the teams that we have in the UN. So I think there's a range of simulations that one can use. The gaming approach, which is pretty much a learning thing, if we all sat together and ran the game for two and a half, three hours, we'd learn a lot about what pandemic might do for us. The more protocol development type approach where we sit around and agree how we're going to react when the pandemic starts and then a very specific thing that might be applied to our institution. We're trying to do a, a sort of analysis of all these different simulations. We probably um, need a bit of help with it because uh, it's, a, it's a science, isn't it? Studying this way of working and um, uh, if you have some expertise that you could um, can contemplate sharing with me, I'd quite like to follow up because I think it's very important. She does. You do. You do. I kind of very was replying quite carefully because I suspected you had the knowledge. How much is communication tested? You also have knowledge. 
Armenia is a challenging country to have been working in. And uh, uh, I've just opened our report at chapter 6, which is the one that includes the analysis of pre-testing of communications and also evaluation of communications, whether or not impact assessments have been done and what's then been done with the impact assessments. This was, I felt, almost the least satisfactory part of this report. And I think in general in public health programming, it's one of the least well-done pieces of work. The communication module of a public health program is kind of plugged in at the end Often the messages are developed and are not properly pre-tested or post-tested and people are scared of doing impact assessments because they might find that they didn't do it very well. And it's one of the areas where you can look really stupid if you've not done it very well. So I think that this is not good. And I think it's, uh, I kind of mentioned it and it's something that I think we need to do more on. Uh, it's also been one of the hardest parts of our work to fund. The lead agency on it was UNICEF. They got a lot of money from Japan, but they only got it for a very short time, and we're finding it very difficult to get the resources we need to do really scientific work on this. On, um, I mean, uh, you've said, Alan, what can we learn from AIDS? For me, AIDS taught me, the work on AIDS has taught me so much about work on health and development in general. And the one main thing that I learned, and still continue to learn, is that if we're dealing with a really complex, multifaceted problem that is not capable, it's not what uh, Tony was referring to earlier today as a puzzle that has a solution. It's a problem that is going to change its shape and it's going to be with us for many years to come. You can't deal with it without involving the people themselves who are living with that problem. You can't deal with it without their engagement and the engagement of their societies in all aspects of the response. You can't deal with it without finding ways to build a global movement. And I suppose that's what we've really been trying to do um, when working on avian influenza and pandemic planning, is not to see it as a top-down activity that's entirely done according to a blueprint or a cookie cutter that's come from one place, but is instead capable of being nuanced, adapted, developed, owned, enjoyed by the communities who are themselves involved. Can I just intervene? I think that is on one of the most important lessons we've got from the HIV exam. Right. It's absolutely fundamental. Okay. I mean, I was glad to be able to say it because because I kind of, I mean, I think a lot of us have just just had to completely undo the way our minds have worked on a lot of things. I mean, Alan, you're the person who's been most involved in this, so is Michael. I think schools should be thinking about disasters, pandemics, community resilience, ways in which children and parents can work together to cope with long periods of being isolated, electricity being cut off, a major disease outbreak, even a, a perhaps a bit of civil strife, though that may be more difficult. I've seen it done in other countries where this happens a lot. I mean, see work in Palestine, it's daily life. I've seen it happen in, in countries where there is a lot of um, risk of earthquakes, like in Iran, where the school kids actually do drills and not only do the drills, but they often teach their parents because the school can be a place of learning, of empowerment and of working with parents. And so I'm, I'm one of the people who thinks that you should do lots of kind of fun stuff 
around how we would cope with a crisis of whatever kind it is with school kids and just just do it and if you're going to get trouble from um, from parents obviously they've got to be God on side but I think it's a really valuable thing to do and also I think it then gives a chance to work through how will we cope if the school has to close for a month which is a real issue particularly for the primary carers of the children who are usually women and who therefore are going to be very affected by school closures which is one of the things that I think many governments have had to think about I think refugees and migrants get a bad deal in so much of public health they've got a pretty bad deal on when they've got chronic conditions like diabetes or heart disease or epilepsy and they get a bad deal when it comes to planning for something like this but that's why involvement of UNHCR and the International Office of Migration in this work has been particularly important they are full members of the consolidated UN action plan and I'm really pleased that they've also managed to get some money from a number of governments for the work that they're doing I'm happy to talk to you more about that uh, in private John, I, I think um, I'm interested. I mean, I agree with you. I did actually remember a bit about um, 68. I don't know why, but it, it, as I think probably my father talked to me about it. But um, I agree with you that it is quite difficult to find, way, find the right way to internalise concern about this uh, when the day-to-day experience of many individuals in relation to this phenomenon is likely to be relatively mild, but the totality of the phenomenon and its potential to mess things up is so great. I don't know the answer, but in short, it's rather the same as what I was saying about schools, that I think kids at school should learn about contagion, should learn about disease outbreaks, and should learn about what they can do to play their part in its control. When facts change, I change my mind. I think I've said it, Alan, but I'll say it again. There is no standardised approach to any issues in public health. The only thing that really matters is that the people who are experiencing the issues and who are perhaps themselves involved in the response uh, have to be owning that response and not simply the the objects of um, technology transfer or being told what to do. But I think everybody in this room would agree with that. And I do think that the UK government is really trying its best to do that and the people here, I know how hard they're working on it. And lastly, interestingly, just at the moment, H5N1 of the current variety when it gets into humans in most situations is responding quite well to oseltamivir if the oseltamivir is administered early. But that does not mean that antivirals, particularly the neuromindase inhibitor group of antivirals, will necessarily be very, very effective in dealing with the pandemic virus when it comes. And we have to keep bearing that in mind. At the same time, they probably do offer the best that we've got for potentially protecting frontline personnel. And my advice to governments is concentrate on having your oseltamivir to protect and reassure your frontline personnel, health, uh, civil defence, security, essential utility workers, they're the ones who are really going to need it. And vaccines, I, I think you asked a supplementary question, which I will just reiterate what I said. We don't know for sure 
and we will never know for sure that an anti-H5N1 vaccine will necessarily protect against pandemic influenza because we don't know what virus is going to cause the pandemic. And this is a very tricky issue for governments to have to deal with at the moment, and it's one that I expect we'll be talking about uh, in the follow-up to this lecture. Okay? Thank you very much. It's fun. Fun. Thank you. Enjoy it.